there's there's probably no area in Jewish life that that meets constant resistance from people in terms of observance that they have difficulty with. And it's constantly being challenged produces the greatest amount of discussion, debate, controversy as the issue of rabbinic authority. It's probably the one area that can constantly find itself regurgitating over and over again the same issues, the same questions. Apparently people are always a little bit dissatisfied with it. It's not really on philosophical ground so much because you know, when you uh, intellectually intellectually, logically philosophically everybody understands the great need for it so it's not so much logical as what I would call psychological which is what I consider very often psychology to be anyway very often very often it's Right. Right. From the insider's point of view, I mean, if you if you look at what's going on in the world today, you see what it means. Oilum goilum. Oilum goilum. Oh yeah. In other words, uh, if uh, if two children, fifteen and twelve, that just lost their mother, the princess, are made to go to church, that's considered cruel. And that's considered unemotional and not letting them act out their feelings. But if they're then made to parade in front of the people and shake hands and smile and receive flowers, oh, that's a human touch already, and that's compassionate. And the island buys into all of this. The island buys into this. This is called emotional. This is called true feelings. This is called the right thing to do when everybody sheds a tear. And the other thing is the cruel royals of Britain are being, you know, making them just keep a stiff upper lip and duty bound. I mean, it's it's incredible what it is, oilum goilum. And and it's all this pop psychology stuff. So there's logical and then there's psycho logical. Okay, that's what I in any case, that's not the topic. But that's not the topic. It's a topic in itself, yeah, it's a topic in itself. But the issue then of rabbinic authority and our requirement to submit to it is really on, you know, if one would view it objectively, it's quite logical. It makes a great deal of sense. Nevertheless, it meets with a great deal of resistance by people. It's not necessarily then philosophical and, and logical and intellectual that, uh, that causes this friction, but rather it's an emotional and a gut reaction and a psychological response. A lot of it has to do with the question, what exactly are the limits of rabbinic authority and our requirements and our obligations to submit to it? And I guess there is a certain philosophical question there that if one views the Torah as being divine, then the idea of submitting to human authority meets with some resistance. You know, here we're trying to view the Torah as being a divine document. And the idea of having human beings in charge meets with some resistance. And therefore there is that logical component to it where people want to know what then are the limits and what are the obligations of the people to have to submit to them. And why should they be the authorities? 
So that's in this week's Parsha. Parsha Shoftim actually deals with this issue, and therefore I think it behooves us to finally, I mean, we're definitely not going to do a thorough job of it. I don't pretend to do a thorough job of it. There's a lot of little byways and, and parts of it. There are de- definitely a lot of legitimate points of discussion along the way as to what exactly are the limitations and what are the obligations. And it gets really, really very involved. It's a, it's a, it's a major area of Torah law. So we won't really be able to do an adequately thorough job of of doing uh, doing it justice. However, just the the broad overview, and to see the Rambam and to see the Sefer Achinuch and the Ramban, and to just see some of the the parameters and how it develops and how it works, is just worthwhile seeing so that we could, to a certain extent, once and for all, go into the the heart of the issue. So first, let's take a look at what the Torah itself says regarding the question. Of course, the, the very first Pusik, the very first Pusik of this week's Pasha actually is a command that we should that we should create the structure, the infrastructure of law, of human law. Shoftim Vishotrim Titan We're not gonna really spend time on the first Pasik, I'm just wanna introduce it. Shoftim Vishotim Titan Lucha Bachol Shorecha, Asha Shemalokecho no Sain Lukhol Shvatecha there's a commandment in the Torah to set up courts of justice, to set up law, and not only law, but law enforcement. Shoftim is judges and courts. Shodrim, of course, is police to enforce the law. So there's an obligation to set up law and to set up courts and to set up the enforcement of the law. Judges, those people that legislate the law, those people that adjudicate the law and those people that will come and enforce the law. So we have an obligation to set up legislation. This is a requirement in every city, in every district, whether it applies only in Eretz Yisrael or even outside of Eretz Yisrael. Again, we're not going to go into all of the details of the law. Primarily, it applies to Eretz Yisrael. To the, to the degree that they have to set it up, whether in each city, in each district, the size of the cities, the size of the districts, the tribes. These are all details which we're going to leave out right now. But that's not really our focus. But right away, the Torah introduces this requirement. So we have right away the requirement of Shoftim, name of the parasha, set up judges, leaders. In the time of, this, uh, of, of after the Jews entered the land of Israel, after the time of Joshua, it was the era known as judges or shoftim. Exactly how one defines the word shoftim in that context is slightly different. Over there, the word shoftim would probably mean chief as opposed to judge. They did more than just judge. Some of them weren't even as such judges, but rather, it's, it's a whole question as to how to translate the word. Historians deal with this. Um, um, what do they call them? Philologists deal with it. It's a very interesting topic as to what the word shoftim actually means in the context that it was used over there. But again, that's beyond the scope. I'm just pointing out that, that the term shoftim, as used in the ear of the shoftim, had a somewhat uh, slightly nuanced meaning different than the way it's meant over here. 
because they were actually like chiefs or tribal chiefs, charismatic figures, leaders, judges. They had different kinds of functions. Okay. <clears throat> the portion, though, that we do have to deal with is the following. Page 475. <laughs> What's the word yipole? Some will see in the word yipole as pella. That if something is too great, too pelvic, the actual meaning of the word ki pole, the way Rashi and most people understand it, is from the word havdola, or covered. If the thing is removed from you, if the thing is too distant from you, if it's covered. In other words, if you ever have something which seems to be hidden from you, la mishpat, in terms of judgment. And the Torah describes various forms of law that may be considered a little bit too distant. In fact, how does the art scroll translate key, Paul? The art scroll translates it as hidden. The matter of judgment is hidden. Different areas. Matters of blood. Law. Those are blemishes. Divrei rivos matters of controversy or debate or strife or fighting bisharecho in your gates the kamta you shall arise voliso el hamokam asheyiv Hashem elokechobo you shall arise go up to the place that Hashem has chosen this by the way is an indication again the Torah was given before the Jews entered the land of Israel so whenever reference is made to the Beis Hamikdash or to Yerushalayim it's always made in this fashion. Firstly, the idea that you're going to go up to the place. It's always called Aliyah, right? Aliyah Laregel, to go up to Harabais, that Yerushalayim was on the hill. Harabais, the Beis was always on the hill. And the Torah always refers to it as the place that Hashem will eventually choose, because it hasn't yet been chosen. The point over here is that when you have a matter of great controversy, even though we've already said that we've established in all the districts, in all the townships, in all the villages, in all the cities, courts of judgment, nevertheless there will be times and situations when you, you, you haven't resolved it yet. And if there is still strife and debate and controversy, you're going to have to go to, up to the place where you'll have a final adjudication of the situation. And you'll go up to the place that Hashem has chosen. Again, we have learned in a number of places in Parshish Mishpatim. We've learned over there as well. We've mentioned this in a number of places. That the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin of 71 elders, sat actually in the base of Migdash itself. In the Lishkas Hagozis, it was actually in the temple precinct. In fact, as we'll see, when we learn the Rambam very shortly, that there were several phases and stages as to how the Sanhedrin and the courts were set up. We'll see what that means. But it's all based on this Pasuk. However, at this point, I think we'll take one slight digression. Again, because it's a parsha. You know, although I want to learn this subject matter, but due to the fact that it's a parsha, so you'll have a, a couple of vertlach. So this is a slight digression from our main focus of topic, just to say it's, it's a beautiful word from the, from the Ostropoli Rebbe comes from the Sefer Haaretzvi. If you look in the upper left, there's a beautiful shot here. On this Pasuk, 
If there's a matter that's hidden from you, a matter of judgment between blood and blood, matters of finding and controversy in your gates, you shall come up to Yerushalayim. So he brings down here a very interesting medrash. It's an interesting medrash. What's the medrash? It's a very, very palavigan medrash. Medrash. In fact, the medrash is in a few places. He brings it down from the Yalkut. He says like this: Yevur b'derek drushal pe'amuva b'yalkut. He brings down the Yalkut. Shalu malachei hashoris la'kodesh baruchu. This is a medrash that quotes. A kind of a question that the angels on high ask God during the time of the destruction of the temple. I think this is something which, which in light of the unfortunate circumstances of the past couple of days, is probably also appropriate. In fact, the two pieces that I have over here are both appropriate, as we'll see. Shualu malachei hashoris lakodesh boro. The angels on high. Ask God, Lomo chasto al How come you seem to have had compassion on the blood of wild beasts and birds more than on Jewish blood? Why is that? There's a law. There's a law in in Jewish law. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that when you shech the bird, chicken, any bird. Oh, or a chaya, not by a behemoth. The halacha is, the reason why behemoth is different is for a different reason. I don't want to get so much into it right now. There's a mitzvah of kisui hadam, right? Those dafyomi people there have learned it recently, right? Mitzvah of kisui hadam is a mitzvah sasei midaraisa. That you have to cover the blood of a bird. It's a whole question how they do it. There's a whole interesting process because nowadays they mass produce Shechting birds, you know, the chickens, they do hundreds at a time. So there's a mitzvah to cover the blood. So there's a whole procedure as to how they do it. They shecht it in the kind of a pit, and then they cover it up with, with sand, with dirt. All kinds of questions. On Yontif, for example, you're allowed to shecht on Yontif, but you're not allowed to dig. So how do you cover the blood of a bird if you shecht a chicken on Yontif? You have to have ashes. You have to have ashes. Very good. Very good. That's Mishnah and Deah, right? With ashes. So how you cover up the blood? So there's a mitzvah that that wild beasts, refer to deer and such kind of uh, giraffes, um, maybe a buffalo even, uh, as opposed to let's say cows and, and these things. But wild beasts, such as deer and birds, when they get shechted, there's a mitzvah that say to cover their blood. So the angel said. You apparently had compassion on the blood of the birds and the wild beasts to require that when their blood is shed, it should be covered. Yet we find one of the curses, we find, we say in Tehillim, in fact, whenever one of these events, one of these terror attacks occurs, so they say the Kapitlach Tehillim, in fact, maybe some of you even have it when they, they set out from some of these yeshivas, they say Kapitl Ayintes, pay, pay gimel. So one of the psukim that you find is that it says Shofchu domam kamayim sevivos Yerushalayim ve'ain cover. See how literally this was fulfilled. 
Their blood, the blood of the Jews, has been shed and spilled around the environs of Yerushalayim, and there is no one to bury it. The ain't cover, there is no burial for it. It's a pusik, it's a curse. It's a pusik until. So the angels asked, at the time of the destruction of Yerushalayim, how come God, you had compassion on birds and wild beasts that their blood at least after it's shed gets covered but Jewish blood why is that? you require you obligated the covering of their blood and the and the dignity, Jewish dignity, you apparently didn't have compassion for. There is no burial for it, for that blood. Why is that? You know, the blood that was shed yesterday, two days ago, in Ben Yehuda, 200 people injured. All that blood is not going to be covered. Why is that you didn't have mercy and compassion on Jewish blood to give it that dignity. Says the Medrash, you know why? Because the Jews didn't have compassion towards each other. Because of the sinas chinam, the hatred, hatred, the strife amongst the Jews themselves. If you can't have human dignity one to another, that's why Hashem didn't have this compassion on their blood. In other words, sinas chinam causes a loss of Jewish dignity, of human dignity, and therefore mida kineged mida, Hashem allows our blood to be shed in causeless hatred. I mean, the hatred of suicide bombers. You can't, you can't have a greater form of sinas chinam than three people should blow themselves up just so another three people should die. Another three innocent people should die. That's real sinas chinam. If you have <coughs> hatred amongst yourselves, then it promotes greater hatred and the loss of human dignity to such a degree that even the blood of birds and wild beasts get, gets a greater degree of compassion. You bring it upon yourself. Says the Astropoli that you can see it in this Pasik. It's in this Pasik. If by you it becomes a pella about judgment. Why is this blood different than this blood? You have a question. A question that people are asking. It's a pella. Why is the human blood of Jews less than the dam of the wild beasts and the birds, this Pasuk. And you want to know, Bein Dom Ledom, why there is this different? And you want to know, Ki Yipolimim Chodomo Nishtana Dam Yisroel, Midam Chayis V'Oifus. You want to know why Jewish blood is different than the blood of wild beasts and birds? Look at the rest of the Pasuk. You should know it's because of Divrei Rivois Mishorecha because of the strife that's in your gates. Hamarivois of the sinas chinam, shahoyu beinayam, the sinas chinam, 
the strife that's in your midst, that's the cause of the difference of the dam between dam and dam. The medrash itself actually goes into explaining between din ledin, between negel and nega, and all of it is appropriate. I just brought down this brief excerpt, but I think in the light of the events the past couple of days, it's a very, very appropriate piece over here. If you want to know why there's a difference between dam and dam, between the dam chay of oifus, that there's more compassion shown to the blood of wild beasts and animals and birds than Jewish blood. Shofchu domen kamayim svivos Yerushalayim as was literally fulfilled the past couple of days. The answer is strife and fighting in your gates. Again, that's just a brief diversion. This isn't the main topic. The main topic I said we're going to focus on this rabbinic authority situation, but just a brief vort on the parsham. In any case, so you have to go up to the place that Hashem has chosen. The just briefly, what is Divrei Rivos referring to? So again, look in Rashi, three lines from the bottom in the second column. In a case of Divrei Rivos where the Chachonin of the local district, local courts are inconclusive and incapable of reaching a conclusion about the particular problem. They're arguing. So then you don't know what to do. So you got to go to the next phase. You go from the local district courts to the federal courts. And from there you go on and on and up to the Supreme Court. The Count of Olisa, you go up. Because you're going to go to the base of Mikdash, where you're going to have the main courts, as we'll see what those courts were all about. What do you do? It goes on. You go to the Kohanim, the Levim, the Hashofet, and to the judge, Asher to the judge that will be in those days. Interesting how the Torah itself is anticipating some of these questions that people question. Well, my judge isn't so good, my leaders aren't so good. But the Torah specifically says, go to the judge that exists in your days. He's going to have to judge. The judge that exists in those days. Because the Torah is being a document being given for all time, for all eternity. And it's anticipating that not always are all judges going to be on the same high level. Rebbeinu B'chaya points out, even if they're not as smart. See, some people say they're not as righteous, they're not as pious, they're not as great, they're not as prophetic, they don't have as much Ruach HaKodesh. But what about if they're not as smart? You know, even then, even if they're not as smart. Rebbeinu B'chaya points out, even if they're not as smart. Rashi right away says it over here. Rashi in the bottom line, even if those judges, those great leaders aren't as great as the generations before, nevertheless, you are obligated to listen 
to obey, to be obedient, to submit to Him. Why? Because you have nothing more than the judges that exist in your days. You can't go back in time. When it comes to law, when it comes to Torah, there's no such thing as nostalgia. It doesn't work. You know, the good old days, it doesn't work. You could only go to the judges that you have. Even if they're not as great as previous generations, the Torah is already anticipating, the Torah is already anticipating all these these situations. So therefore you have to go to the judge, or in the words of the Gemara, Yiftach Bedaro, Kishmuel Bedaro, Shmuel was of course one of the he was the last of the Shoftim, the first of what we would call the era of Nevi'im. He was also one of the greatest of Nevi'im. In many ways, he's compared by Chazal, by the Torah itself, to the level of Moshe and Aaron combined together, right? Exactly. Moshe and Aaron together, Shmuel seems to, in many ways, equal them. So he was the greatest of the judges, no question. One of the least of the judges is, of course, Yiftach, Jephthah. Yiftach, he's the one that seemed to have been so ignorant that he did something to his daughter. We're not exactly sure what he did. But whatever he did, he seemed to have done something wrong. He came from ignoble birth. He wasn't a yid. He was ostracized by, by most of society until they needed him. But nevertheless, he seemed to have been an inspired leader and a successful one at that. And later on, when he became the leader, people had to obey him. And he had to obey him. He had the same authority and the same level. And as the Gemara says, he's the least of the judges. And Shmuel is the greatest of the judges. He had to give him the same level of authority. Yiftoch bedor, Shmuel bedor. That's what it says. You go to the judge that exists and lives in your days. Part of the reason, of course, is that the people get the leaders that they deserve. And leaders generally are reflections of the people. And the generation of Yiftoch, if you can't produce a better leader than Yiftoch, you probably don't deserve a better leader than Yiftoch either. He's the generational leader and the one that you deserve the most. He's the one you go to. Okay. So you go to him. You then make inquiry, they will tell you what to do. Again, we'll see what the Rambam says, but we're just going through the Pesukim. You shall then perform and do and observe, do, based on that which they tell you. From that place, referring to the base of Mikdash. Here again, the Torah refers to the base of Mikdash with the same kind of terminology. You shall do based on that which Hashem tells you from that place which Hashem has chosen what they tell you. Again, it's always the reference to Yerushalayim and Beis Amikdash. It's always referred throughout the Torah as the place that Hashem shall eventually choose. The Shomar Tolasos carefully observed to do Kechol Asher Yerucha according to all that which they teach you and guide you and instruct you. Again, it repeats it for emphasis. According to the Torah that they instruct you, and based on the mishpat, on the judgment that they inform you, 
task that you shall do. Lo Do not veer, do not deviate from that which they tell you, not to the right, not to the left. Here Rashi says the famous statement based on the Gemara. What does it mean left and right? Even if they tell you on that which to you seems your right hand, they say it's your left hand. It's so obvious that they're mistaken. And they tell you what's the left, they tell you the right. We'll see what Ramban says about it. But just to use a more modern a more modern setting for this. Even if sometimes the inclination of people is to be a little bit leftist and the rabbis seem to be overly rightist or the inclination of the people is to be rightist and the rabbis seem to be very pacifistic, very leftist. I mean, we understand yeah, the example that Chazal always use is on your right they say left and on your left they say right. That's what to you seems clear as your right and your left. And the rabbis tell you, no, the other way. Say, it's so obvious that they're wrong. They're obviously so mistaken. But this is their consensus opinion in the courts. You have to follow it even if it means giving up your right hand to your left and your left to your right. But when we think about it, we see how the world constantly follows this kind of a style. In uh, None of you noticed, of course, my glasses. Yes, I yeah, did. you did. Okay. So my wife insisted that I wear these things. I know a few years ago, when uh, if I would have wanted to put on these kind of glasses, she said, well, you, you know, look old like a Rebbe, like a this, uh, like Woodrow Wilson, or, or, or one of these kind of things. You know, these small glasses. Because the big ones were in style. Now all of a sudden, those big ones, they cover up your face. All you see is the glass. You got to get these little ones. What what changed exactly? What exactly is fashion and style? What changed? Only that the oilum goilum out there that we talked about earlier is doing it. That's the only thing that changed. Absolutely nothing else changed. I mean, objectively speaking, the small is still the same. Small, the large is still the same. Large, but it's what everybody else is doing. What's in fashion? You all remember when ties were wide, and the small ties looked 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 stupid and now when the small narrow ties were in the wide ones looked gaudy and ridiculous right, right. you all remember that sure. everybody remembers that and in the eyes of the people it changes that means that your view of something changes based on what's fashionable large is in small is in wide is in narrow is in it changes objectively nothing changed it's what people view it as it's the oilum goilum which is really what fashion and style are about. It's if the majority is doing it, that's fashion. It's not the fashionable people are doing it. It's only that if everybody follows it, then everybody says, yeah, this makes sense to do. This is the most wonderful thing to do. So it's a question of fashion. The w- people's... Pres- yeah, one. Uh, unfortunately, though, what, you're, what you're saying is true, that animals don't change, humans change. But you, you ever go into a park and there's a bunch of bugs? You ever notice how you have a thousand bugs flying? So also they all go that way, and then they all veer this way. Or you ever see a bunch of birds, a flock of birds, and all of a sudden they all veer? I don't know how they do it. It's called a herd mentality. 
you know, cows start to stampede, they all start to stampede. It's a herd mentality. Unfortunately, human beings also have a herd mentality. If the herd is going to the right, everybody's going to the right. If the herd's going to the left, everybody goes to the left. Politically, it's the exact same thing. There was a period of time when the Messianic fervor was in, and everybody was a Messianist after the assassination of Rabin. Messianism was out, and everybody was the other way. There's a period of pacifism, and people are pacifistic, and then the rabbis seem to be overly rightist. Right? They refer to the rabbis as being in the ultra-nationalist camp, and they're too right. No, everybody sees things in the correct way is the left, and the rabbis are far out in the right field. We all know, of course, that in the days of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, at the time of the end of the Second Temple period, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai seemed to be out in left field. Because, hey, what are you talking about? Our freedom, our liberty, we're going to be pacifistic and give in to the Romans? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had to risk his life to escape Yerushalayim in order to be able to go meet with the Roman general Vespasian and to come up with some sort of a of an accommodation with him. So Rabbi Yochanan would have been viewed as ultra-liberal and left. There's a period I remember when Rabbi Avadi Yosef and Rabbi Shach were viewed as very leftist. Why? Because they advocated peace negotiations and giving back some of the territories. And the world looked at them as being too far off to the left. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was viewed as being on the left. No question. If you would have asked what people thought of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, now he's a left-wing rabbi. He's a left-wing rabbi. He had to literally sacrifice, he had to, to endanger his life to escape Yerushalayim from the rightists in order to accommodate Vespasian. Josephus. What? Josephus. Well, okay, Josephus is, is, is a controversial figure. I don't, want to, I don't want to get into historical figures now. I'm trying to just you merely... Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting into history now. I'm just merely using points of illustration that we can all readily see. Josephus is a controversial figure in himself. And I don't want to get into Josephus. He's also not considered a... from these... But there's no question that Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai was the leader of his generation. And he would have been viewed as this left-wing rabbi who was going against the grain because there was nationalistic fervor then. And the same thing happened 75 years ago and 60 and 50 years ago whether it was Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld and the people pre-state you know, um, of Israel during the era of when Zionism was beginning with the agitation. The rabbis were viewed on the left because they were advocating accommodation, they were not advocating nationalism and fighting and strength and kayach and these things, they were viewed on the left. However, there were other periods in history when the rabbis were viewed all the way, these right-wing fanatic rabbis. Matis Yohu, Kohen Gobel, Yehuda Maccabi. Everybody was accommodating Greek Hellenism, and these right-wing rabbis were advocating rebellion and fighting. Rabbi Yochan ben Zakar was advocating accommodation when the people viewed things as, let's fight the Romans. And Matisio, Kohen Gadol, and his the Maccabees were advocating strength and nationalism. They were viewed as right-wing fanatics. And now also, now rabbis are viewed as right-wing fanatics as well. 
So what people view as being in fashion, and the rabbis are viewed as being out of fashion, is a literal fulfillment of because people are based on what's in fashion and people say the correct behavior is to be a leftist and the rabbis are too far off to the right now the rabbis are on the left I want to be on the right they're fanatical small the rabbis are saying abortion is wrong they're too right wing it's too right wing. It's considered left wing to to allow killing of babies. But the rabbis sound like they're. On the other hand, euthanasia at one time was viewed by people. Was viewed by people as being something cruel. Now it's viewed as being something compassionate. See how people's perspectives change. 20, 30 years ago, when you brought up the topic of euthanasia, Jack Vorkin, everybody would think of the Nazis. Euthanasia? That's Nazism, that's fascism. Killing, you know, that's 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 right wing, it's ultra right wing, and compassion is is to preserve life. Now it's used it's called death with dignity. All you do is just change the terminologies. Now it's called death with dignity. And a lot of people are viewing it as being more compassionate. So now those that are anti euthanasia are viewed as right wing. At one time abortion would have been viewed as a cruel thing. Now, it's called pro-choice. And if you're against abortion, you're anti-choice. You're viewed as ultra-right-wing. So you see how people's perspectives change. And what the rabbis were called left-wing, then they're not called right-wing. When the right-wing... Right and left. So you see literal fulfillment of this possible. Okay. Let's go on with the next possible. It all started with your glasses. It all started with my glasses. <laughs> now, there's a very interesting lesson from the next passage, which we will again digress before we go back to our main topic. Yeah. Yeah. No. That. that right. Right. It, it is ironic that the Torah's terminology of right and left is so appropriate to our conception of these ideas. Yomin small, right wing and left wing. Next passage. Now, next passage is a rather difficult one, and it's rather involved. And the person that will high-handedly, brazenly violate the vilti who will brazenly dis, um, disagree and disobey these dictates, umeis ho'ishahu, that man shall be put to death to Viyar the Rami Yisrael. It's Chayv Misa. V'cholom Yishmu V'yirov V'loyazid Nod and the people should see and it should be a deterrent that people should no longer continue to violate to violate this particular law. Is this the basis, you know, when occasionally what we've seen in the Gemara it says if you violate rabbinic law you're Chayv No, this, well, no, not really, not really. This is referring to a very specific case Although it's not, it's not apparent superficially when you see the psukim, it's referring to a, to a very um, rare, exceptional type of case known as Zokin Mamre. Only in the case of where you have a Sanhedrin, and one member of the Sanhedrin, after the consensus is reached, he decides 
to go off on his own and create his own subsect, if you will, and substructure and to and to go against the dictates of the Sanhedrin, and he's a sage, then he's put to death because of the danger of causing a split in the Jewish people. So it only applies to a situation of a Sanhedrin. It only applies to a situation where a Sanhedrin reaches a consensus ruling, and only on certain kinds of rulings. doesn't apply to all kinds of rulings. And only then if the sage of the Sanhedrin then goes off in another direction. And it'll only apply to him. So it doesn't apply to your general, typical Jew. It will not apply. And therefore it can't apply nowadays. What? Again, the Gemara will deal with all of these things. I said earlier that there's a lot of laws here that we cannot possibly cover. I'm just explaining to you the, the meaning of the Pusik. Uh, yes, that's, that, that, that is a good comparison, which we'll eventually get to. That the situation of Rebbe Eliezer HaGodl, where they ostracized him, again, he wasn't Chayim Misa, because there was no Sanhedrin sitting in the Lishkas HaGodl, and, and the issue wasn't of the same nature. But yeah, there are certain, in other words, the, the spirit of the law certainly applied to the situation of Rebbe Eliezer HaGodl versus the rest of the sages. Yes, we'll eventually get back to that story. But at this point, before, so now that we've we finally learned the Pesukim, uh, there's just an interesting, another word which I think is also appropriate in light of current events, also a word in the past, a little bit of a digression, the lower piece from the left. Very interesting word. It says over here, you'll put this person to death, and the people will then see and learn from this the lesson of deterrence. In other words, really, ultimately, the purpose of the death penalty is to be a deterrence. See, he points out here a very interesting idea. What is this deterrence that we're talking about here? Come and see. Take a look at what deterrence is amongst the Jewish people. What does it mean? The people will see, they will learn from this, and they will no longer violate the Torah in such a fashion. We know, most of you are familiar with this, Chazal say that a Sanhedrin that puts a person to death once every seven years, once every 70 years, is considered to be a killer Sanhedrin. In other words, it was rare for Sanhedrin to go put people to death. Certainly the situation that we're talking about is a real rarity because just to have these circumstances come together is, is rather rare comes out that to have a Sanhedrin kill a person be killed through a Sanhedrin was something which was, an, which was considered rare in Jewish life nevertheless the Torah says that the fact that it would happen even on those rare occasions would be enough to bring about in the people would be enough to deter the people seeing the death penalty invoked on these rare occasions would be considered an adequate amount of deterrence that would scare and frighten the people from sinning again. And if we see that once in 70 years was considered the, um, an exceptional thing, it must be that if Bezd decrees a death penalty on a person, it would be enough to make people have the collective memory that a person died and people for 70 years would remember the fact that 
such a thing occurred. That's what the Pasuk seems to indicate. The people will hear, they will see, and they will no longer sin. When you think about it, we know in a more innocent era what it was when people heard about the event that someone died. How frightening it was. And how people remembered it for generations. Everybody remembers the famous, what was it, in 63, 64, something like that. Kitty Genovese, famous story about the woman that was killed and, and nobody came in over there. And everybody says, wow, what a reflection on the hard-heartedness of New Yorkers. And for decades, people spoke about it. And now it's commonplace behavior. And you don't think twice. When you hear a horrendous event occur, people get used to it. When a terrorist event, attack, used to occur in Israel, for decades, people remembered these things. Blood was shed. Someone died. What lesson do we learn from the value of one human life that, that was extinguished? People learned lessons. That's the way it was supposed to be. A bezin that put someone to death. Someone died. Someone was killed. A Jew murdered another Jew. Unheard of. Shocking. And the shock would last, would last for decades. There was a time when a sota would drink from the water and would die. And the Gemara and Saita says that when adultery became commonplace amongst Jews and the shock value went up, the Jews no longer merited the miracle of having an adulterous woman die from drinking this thing. Because once adultery became commonplace, then already you don't deserve the miracle. But when adultery was a rarity, you deserve because of the sanctity of the Jewish people and the high moral stature of the Jews, you deserve to have the miracle of the waters of Sota that it should retain its shock value for decades. But we see from here a remarkable lesson that if Besden, in fact, and the same thing happened, by the way, with the death penalty. Once the death penalty, once there were many murderers amongst the Jews, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai, they abolished the death penalty. Well, they didn't exactly abolish the death penalty like that. They had to do it in a legal way. But the Beisden left, or the Sanhedrin, left the Lishkas Hagozes in the base of Migdosh and moved to Yavne. First moved to Harabais, moved out of the... The, the law is that the death penalty cannot be invoked in the Jewish people unless the great Sanhedrin is sitting in the Lishka Sagos. What that means is the following. I just briefly point out this particular law. The death penalty did not have to be administered only by the Sanhedrin. There were some cases, such as this case, this case of the Zokin Mamre, of the sage that deviates. His law and judgment and death penalty has to be adjudicated as well as administered by the great Sanhedrin. However, a typical capital case, such as murder, can be adjudicated and administered by the, by the local district um, minor Sanhedrin of 23. But that's only if the great Sanhedrin is sitting in the, in the base of Mikdash. Once that Sanhedrin is no longer functioning, then the lesser courts can no longer administer capital punishment. So what Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai did was that the great Sanhedrin left their temple precinct, 
And once that happened, there's no longer death penalty by the Jewish people. And that occurred when? Once there were too many death penalty cases coming up. It does. Again, I'm not going to go into all of the things. Yes, you have you know legitimate questions on it. But the point is, this point we still see from it, which is that ultimately, when the Jews no longer had the deterrence of the shock value and the taboo that death and adultery were supposed to convey that shock, the revulsion, you no longer deserve these laws. Once there was no longer Ramesha Feinstein points out in a classic tshuva to, to I, I'm not sure if it was Governor Como or to maybe Governor Rockefeller. He has a um, he has a response. It's in the Igris Moshe. It's in the Igris Moshe. A response that he penned to the then governor of of New York. I, I already don't remember which governor it was. Where he was asked, "What is the Jewish view on the death penalty?" And he has a very very <laughs> carefully nuanced explanation of it. But he points out this idea. He says, take a look by the Jewish people that through all the years murder was a rarity. Yeah, Jews, you know, committed other kinds of crimes. But murder, crimes of violence and these things. He says, part of it is because on the one hand, Jews are against the death penalty. As we were always saying, it was a rarity. On the other hand, it's on the books. He says, the point of having it on the books and not necessarily administering it, is that in the life of a Jewish child, as he's being trained and educated, the idea of killing is just so far removed from his universe that it just can't be. So having on the books that these are sins that are totally beyond the pale. Murder, adultery, idolatry, violation of Shabbos, these are just such things that are just so beyond the pale they cannot be. So therefore, it has its deterrent value in the education of a child merely by having it on the books, even though it's never been administered. Certainly when you have a court in session of Sanhedrin that administers it once every 70 years, the shock of that, the revulsion of that, is enough that lasts for decades. So therefore it has a deterrent value. B'chol yishmu one time administering the death penalty. It's on the books and it's administered rarely precisely because of its rarity and its shock value. It has the deterrent effect that lasts decades and generations. That's the way it's supposed to be. But you're saying that the deterrence really lies in the perceptions of the people. That if the experience itself is foreign to their inner world, that becomes a deterrence and this simply reinforces it. That's partially correct. But also the fact that the Torah deals with it so severely, even if it's not necessarily practically going to be because of legal loopholes, is already in itself goes into the, into the milk that a Jew suckles from his mother's breast. And his whole training is, this is just beyond the pale. We all remember some of these kind of things. Okay, getting back to the main focus. This issue of rabbinic authority, not to deviate. So Ramban really, in a sense, sums it up in a nutshell, explain the concept. Then we'll see more bariches in the Rambam and the Chinuch. So we'll just take a look at the Ramban for now. 
side to upper left. Afilu maimer l'chal yimin shu smoil or al smoil shu yimin. Loshen Rashi. Vinyono. What it means is the following. Afilu tachshav belibcha. Even if you think in your heart of hearts, shehem toim, that the rabbis are mistaken, and they're so mistaken, and they're so obviously wrong. Vadaver poshut beinecha, and it's so simple and clear in your eyes. It's so clear to you like you're right to your left. Nevertheless, you still should submit and you still should obey the way they commanded. Now, even if it's clear to you that they're wrong, even if it's obvious that they're wrong, they're obviously mistaken, nevertheless, don't do as you think, do as they command. He says like this, what about the case of follow about Tamar? How can I go ahead and eat this thing which they said is permissible? When I know it's treif, I know it's treif. How could I eat this thing which I know is treif and they're telling me it's, it's kosher? Or, let's take another case. The laws decided, the courts decided based on the witnesses that the person is guilty and he's chayv misa how could I go ahead and kill an innocent person because of what the court said how could I do such a thing nevertheless the Torah says you have to understand this is what God the commander of commandments commanded me that I should fulfill his commandments according to their interpretation. Therefore, it's no longer a question of, I know it's blood, she's a nida. I know that it's trade. I know that he's innocent. No. God is initially commanding me, it's only kosher or trade based on their say-so in these kind of situations. And the person is chayv misa, or is innocent based on their say-so in these matters. So God initially put in a provisio, so to speak, in the initial commandment, that the commandment is in force based on these particular interpretations as they come about. That it's so to speak as if the mitzvahs were given conditionally, out nigh. They were given with a kind of a tenai, a condition that these are the byways and pathways of how the mitzvah itself was given to be observed. That once the great Sanhedrin rules on something and reaches a consensus, that's the way Hashem wants this mitzvah to be fulfilled. And therefore it's kosher and treif based on their say-so. Because what are you saying? That the Torah tells me one thing and they're obviously wrong. No. The Torah doesn't tell you one thing and they're obviously wrong. Even if they're obviously wrong, they're right. So there's no such thing here as them being wrong because the Torah was given in such a way that under these exceptional circumstances, when they reach a consensus about a certain topic and a certain issue and a certain matter of law, that's the way the law was given. So... By definition, they're not wrong. By definition, they're right. That's the way God gave the Torah. 
that even if in actuality they are wrong, they're right. Even if actually they're wrong, the Torah allowed for this amount of error. Why? We'll see. We'll see the philosophy behind this when we get to the Chinuch. But this is basically the way the structure of the law works. That even if they're wrong, they're still right. Because the Torah was given with the allowance of these kind of errors, that under these things it's self-correcting, that what they say is by definition correct. And therefore, even if they're mistaken, they're still right. Therefore, I have to follow it anyway. That's what, what the uh, Ramban is saying. He brings down the famous story of Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel on Yom Kippur. There was a question of the calendar as to when Yom Kippur was supposed to be. And there was a question of witnesses, whether the witnesses were false or whether the witnesses were correct. And Rabbi Gamliel accepted them. And Rabbi Yeshua said they're obviously lying. And therefore, the new moon starts tomorrow. And Rabbi Gamliel, by accepting them, meant that the new moon starts today. And therefore, 10 days from now is Yom Kippur. And according to Rabbi Yeshua, no. 10 days from tomorrow is Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Gamliel dictated to Rabbi Yeshua. He told Rabbi Yeshua that I want you to violate the day that you consider to be Yom Kippur, to come and visit me in Yavne. And he wasn't sure what to do, and he went to the other sages, and they said, you know what? This is, you have to follow Rabbi Gamliel. But you can't have two bodies of law. Even if you're right, Rabbi Gamliel still has to be right. And by the way, I should just point out, Rabbi Gamliel wasn't the greatest sage. He just happened to have been the head of the Sanhedrin. A consensus was reached in the Sanhedrin, and Rabbi Yeshua was greater, but Rabbi Gamliel was the one that stood up for, for the, for the uh, credibility and for the rights of the Sanhedrin to dictate these kind of calendar laws. And he said, you have to violate Yom Kippur. You have to eat, you have to come and visit me on what you consider to be Yom Kippur. That means even though he's obviously wrong and I'm violating Yom Kippur, but I'm not violating Yom Kippur. He understood this point. That even though Rabbi Gamliel is 100% wrong and Yom Kippur is tomorrow, not today, or rather Yom Kippur is, yeah, tomorrow, not today, nevertheless, today is Yom Kippur and tomorrow is not. And therefore, and this mitzvah, says the Ramban, is extremely important. This is one of the most important mitzvahs in the Torah. We're going to go through this theme a little bit more later. Because the Torah ultimately was given to us written. And we know that any written document, it's impossible that through all the centuries, people are going to read it and view it and interpret it exactly identically alike. It's impossible. Human minds operate and function differently. It's inevitable that there's going to be differences of opinion. It's impossible that in new circumstances and new situations that arise, it's impossible that controversy shouldn't arise. And the Torah foresaw that because of the fact that the Torah is written in, written down, and it's necessarily finite and limited, it just gives you the material to work with, to be able to build an infinite amount of cases, and how to deal with an infinite amount of cases. But it's inevitable that since human beings that are imperfect and not alike are going to have to be the ones to build those new structures that result from a finite or a finite-looking Torah that gives you the building blocks 
for infinite amount of situations, it's impossible that in those infinite amount of situations, controversy will not arise. So it's inevitable that there's going to be controversy. And therefore, inevitably, there's going to be more and more machlaikas, more and more debate, more and more controversy on infinite amount of arguments. We're going to talk about exactly how this operated and the historical aspect of it when we learn the Rambam. But therefore, what's going to happen is from one Torah, you're going to have many Torahs. You're going to have an Ashkenaz Torah, Sfar Torah, Hasidic Torah, Litvish Torah, Hungarian Torah, a modern Orthodox Torah. You're going to have an infinite amount of Torahs. Therefore, one way that the Torah wanted to avoid this is that it's important and it's crucial to seal the Torah. That's what we're doing now in the Bible. We're trying to seal the Torah. <laughs> to lay down the law. That there has to be one source of where consensus can be reached that you have to follow. That you have one central authority source in Yerushalayim, the place that Hashem chose, in the base of Migdash. Again, the place that Hashem chose, that's why it's emphasized. That stands in the base of Migdash. The the place that Hashem has chosen, that their word becomes the final law and arbitration of Torah interpretation. We'll see what all this means. Whether they're basing their rulings on tradition, what they received as received wisdom going back to Sinai, or based on interpretation of the way they understand the Torah text. Or they understand the Torah's, the Torah's will and desire, the spirit of the law. Sometimes they'll say things, this is what the Torah means. Because what Hashem is ultimately telling us is it's through their eyes that the Torah has been given to us. Even if in your eyes it seems like they're so obviously mistaken that they've switched the right to the left. The Kolshkin, certainly, a person shouldn't even think like that. He should realize that they're probably saying that the right is the right and the left is the left. Because ultimately, Hashem wants them to be correct. And even in those majority of the cases where it's not, in a, those minority of cases, where it's not clear and they could conceivably make mistakes, but Ruach Hashem al Mishor Se the spirit of the God of God rests with them to the degree that Hashem wants them to be right. Well, and therefore Hashem will not forsake his um, his his uh, pious ones for making mistakes and from stumbling. We'll, we'll go into this little point a little bit more next time. In other words, what the Ramban is saying that people shouldn't feel a sense of of um, anxiety or trepidation that the rabbis are telling them to do something and it's just so clearly obviously wrong so I'm violating the Torah how could I listen to them Hashem says no I'm only giving you the Torah based on their interpretation anyway so do not have any fears that you're eating treif if they tell you it's kosher and do not have any fears if they tell you that it's treif and it's obviously kosher that you're wasting something and you're throwing it out the Torah was given that the laws of Baltashchis or the laws of kosher and treif are going to be that in situations of where it's difficult to arrive at a conclusion and the sages in the Sanhedrin rule a certain way 
that's the ruling that I want anyway. And if they say that it's treif, then I'm saying it's treif, says God, even if really, in actuality, you would be right thinking that it's kosher. And if they say that it's kosher, even in the actuality, it's treif, have no fear. It's, it's kosher. You could eat it and not feel that I'm eating treif. Because the Torah was given based on their interpretation. And Hashem says, I'm willing to allow those minority of situations of where they're actually making a mistake to, so to speak, contravene the mistake and write it. It was in heaven, so to speak. It's being righted anyway. So have no fears that, because it's necessary for the integrity of the Torah to have this kind of standard. And therefore, when Rabbi Gamliel tells Rabbi Gamliel tells Rabbi Yeshua, and you have to realize Rabbi Yeshua was the number two person. Rabbi Yezer was maybe the greatest of the sages of that era, and Rabbi Yeshua was the second greatest sage of the era. And as we'll shortly see, that Rabbi Yezer Hagodl, the greatest sage of the era, also was faced with this kind of situation, but he didn't, he didn't concede. But Rabbi Yeshua, he went around, he went to Rabbi Akiva, and he asked and he inquired of others, and they all said, you know what, Rabbi Gamliel is the head of the Sanhedrin, his Yom Kippur is the Yom Kippur. And your Yom Kippur, even if you're right, is not the Yom Kippur. Hashem wanted the Yom Tovim to be given that all Jews celebrate one standard day, one holiday. And even if you're right and he's wrong, he is still right and you're still wrong. That's the way the Torah was given. It was given that Rabbi Gamliel's Yom Kippur is the real Yom Kippur, is the genuine Yom Kippur. And your Yom Kippur, even if in actuality, according to astronomical calculations and mathematical calculations, even if you're right, you're still wrong. And Rabbi Gamliel, even if he's actually wrong, he's still right. Follow his Yom Kippur, not your own. That was the advice that Rabbi Yeshua was given. And when Rabbi Yeshua then comes to Rabbi Gamliel on, and violates his own personal Yom Kippur, Rabbi Gamliel greets him and he refers to him as my master and my student. My master because you're smarter than me and you know more than me. My student because you behave as my student, which is the correct behavior over here. Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. So therefore, says the Ramban, this is the way the Torah was given. Because otherwise, it just inevitably, it just won't work out. But then the Ramban ends, and we ended with this last time. I said, I'll, I said I will a little bit elaborate on this. The Ramban says, so this is so, even if they're actually mistaken. The truth is, there'll only be in a minority of situations that they'll actually be mistaken. And therefore, it's worthwhile from God's perspective to allow for those few mistakes because the majority of the time they're going to be right anyway. Certainly, one should generally believe that the Ruach Hashem, that the Spirit of God is on His servants. And He won't forsake His righteous ones. He'll guard them and protect them from making mistakes and from stumbling. The idea is like this. A number of years ago, they once came to the Chazonish they came to the Chazanish with the following question. Over the last several decades, for the past century really even, they were you know, part of archaeology and these things. They were unearthing a lot of old manuscripts, a lot of old, old books, the Cairo Geniza, very rich treasure trove of manuscripts from the Rishonim, from Gemaras, from Rishonim, even from Tanakh. And there's a lot of Rishonim that they came across that maybe disagree 
with the classical Rishayim that we have. We have the Rambam, the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ritva, and most of those Rishayim, their works made it into the mainstream of Halacha. And as a result, the rulings that are in the Shulchan Aruch, the rulings that are in the Shulchan Aruch, are generally based on these classical Rishayim. He says, but now that we have much richer, broader trove of Rishayim, maybe we have to reconsider some of these halachas. It's true that the Beis Yosef and the Ramah and the Morgan Avram and the Shach and the Taz, the classic Hoiskin, Paskin based on these Rishayim, but now we have so much more. Maybe some of it has to be, we have to rethink it, we have to reconsider it, and maybe re revise some of the halacha. Or our one second, that's something else. I'll get that in a second. He was, I think, asked this question. Now we have the Me'iri. Me'iri is a great Rishon. They didn't have the Me'iri. So what do we do now that we have the Me'iri? What do we do with Halacha? What do we do with some of the other things? And we'll extrapolate it to the other things as well. And the Chazanish says, you know what? If it was in the Geniza, even though we don't know who's greater and who's not greater and who should be, that was the way the Hashgachas Hashem worked that for all of these centuries it should be in the Geniza and these should make it into the mainstream and these shouldn't. Why? Who knows? Who knows why one yeshiva is successful and the other yeshiva is not successful? Is it because one yeshiva is greater than the other? Who knows why some things made it into the mainstream and other things got lost? This is a really a very... The idea itself I think is a very important concept because it could be expanded to a lot of areas in Klal Yisrael. In fact, the Chazanish basically ruled along these lines in the area of history, in the areas of halacha, in the laws of treifus. The fact is that Chazal had certain traditions of treif, and based on modern technology and modern science and biology and medicine, it could be reconsidered. For some reason, some things made it into the mainstream and some things didn't. That's also an act of Hashgacha Hashem. We, we talk about Hashgacha. Part of Hashgacha is the history of the Jewish people and the religious history of the Jewish people. Some sects, I wouldn't say movements, but some sects somehow or other made it big and some didn't make it. That's part of Hashgachas Hashem. That's the way the history of Klal Yisrael worked out. Some things made it big, some things didn't make it at all and got lost along the way. Some Rishonim made it very big, some Rishonim didn't. So one could assume several things. These deserve it and these don't. And even if we can't logically ascribe as to why one deserves it or the other, that's part of Hashgach Hashem, that Hashem had His way of making sure that this makes it in and this doesn't make it. So some wound up in the Geniza because they belong there. Others wound up in the Geniza accidentally as what we'll call an act of God. And others didn't. So we're not going to revise the whole history and the whole Misorah of Klal Yisrael based on new findings that we should reconsider it. By the same token, one can use this idea, this concept, in terms of Masoretic texts, in terms of the Girsa, in terms of the way things should be read, the Girsa of the Gemara. The bottom line is that yes, there are different manuscripts that maybe would change things, but we have to realize maybe there's a Hashgoch for some reason that this should make it and this not. And there's no logical reason to say that the manuscript from Munich is better than the manuscript from Prague. Maybe there's no logical reason, but somehow or other this made it. And that's also part of Hashgacha. And this could 
go back, you know, now they have the Dead Sea Scrolls and they have different things and the, the, the Chumash could be read this way or that way. We, we had experience the other day that we have, the Gemara talks about how the Nusach in, uh, in Divri Ayomim, it says L'chaloso versus in Shmuel it says La'anoso. And along the side of the Gemara it says our text happens to be L'valoso, not L'chaloso. So here we have a case of a Gemara that seems to be different than ours. I mean, it's a minor change. It would be from the Chof to a vase. Chof and the vase look 99% identical. Nevertheless, our Nusach is L'valoso in the Rayomen, and that's L'chaloso. So, you have to assume, okay, again, the Rayomen is not as, as primary as, let's say, the Chumash, but certainly one has to assume this is the way it is. We stick to this kind of Misora because it's part of the tradition. God wanted it that way. So to a certain extent, says the Ramban, one has to make the same assumption in the rulings of the sages. When the sages make a ruling and it's going to affect all of Klal Yisrael, God doesn't want them to make a mistake. So He's giving them the correct reading, the correct ruling. It's, I mean, again, we generally don't go with the idea of, of um, Nevoah and Ruach HaKodesh when it comes to Halacha. Halacha is very straight. But the way we work it is that once you logically rule something in Halacha and you utilize to the greatest extent human... But what we're saying is, <coughs> if you've finally gone through the process, you've gone through the process to the greatest degree possible, you went to, we'll shortly see what the, what the process actually is. But once you've gone through that process, and you've gone through all the procedures, and you've done the utmost that a human being can do, then we can say that God will stamp it. God will, will place His seal of approval and His good housekeeping stamp on that final verdict. That's what the, Marsh, what the Ramban is saying, that if the Chachomim are telling you, Yomino small number one, even if they're wrong and you're right, they're still right and you're still wrong. Because even in those minority of cases where you happen to be right and they happen to be wrong, which is a minority of cases, still Hashem wants it that way. But number one, we have to realize that if you go through the process, the chances are that they're going to be right. One could assume in the overwhelming majority of situations, they will be right and you're wrong. That's the first thing you have to think. I'm wrong and they're right. The second thing that you have to think about is that even in those few instances where maybe I'm right and they're wrong, but the Hashgach Hashem is, for whatever reason, Hashem wanted it this way. He's not going to cause them to stumble and make mistakes. He's going to want them to be right. So therefore, even in those cases that it sounds like they should be wrong and you're right, chances are God's desire is that they should be right and you're still wrong. Even after all of that, if you're not satisfied and convinced, and you're saying, no, I'm still right and they're still wrong, God says for the integrity of the Torah, even there where you're actually right and they're actually wrong, they're still right and you're still wrong, because that's the way to maintain and preserve the integrity of the Torah. It's a three-stage process. You're doing everything right, chances are they're right. So you go along with it. And even when not, we have this added thing of Hashgachas Hashem, like the example I gave you from the Chazonish, that says that chances are that they're still right, even in those cases. And even in those few minority of cases, where it's just, they made the mistake, 
there's no such thing as a mistake. God wants the Torah to be given, and He incorporates those mistakes in the whole network, in the dynamics of the Torah. Now let's try to understand what the process is. 